Welcome to the Faith Element Podcast for the June 5, 2022 session, focusing on John chapter 14, verses 8 through 17. Show and tell. I'm David Cassidy. I'm Nikki Hardiman. And I'm David Adams. We have the the terrific trio back with us. <laughs> terrific trio. <laughs> Please don't let that stick. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the terrific trio. I like that. I, th- I think it's got a good ring to it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we So, yes, uh, Daniel and Bert are still away for this episode, but we're excited that we've got Nikki and David Adams here. Yay, we're going to do it. Uh, but, you, list, dear listeners, you should know that all of us are weary as we come to this podcast. <laughs> if only because all three of us work in theological education and graduation is upon us. And it is indeed. <laughs> It it is it's one of those things that you think that's that's not that complex a service, right? How but it is enormous the the moving parts. So many pieces. But we're almost there. Almost. We are so close. <laughs> we can almost taste it. And then it. I will crash. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> I see a very long Sunday nap in my future. <laughs> well, I hope you get one and and uh and get some rest. You too. I will try so hopefully you too, Dave. So somewhere across our lives, I suspect that we have had this experience where someone tells us about something, oh, this is so great, this is wonderful, this is fabulous, and and you're like, yeah, okay, really? Is it is it really? Or even is it real, right? They tell you about this, you're like, yeah, that's not real. <laughs> um, so like Regina it was a travel agent for a, a good part of the early part of our marriage, and she would travel and I would stay home with the kids. Not that I bring that up, but <laughs> <laughs> but she would come back and tell me and show me pictures of all these places, and I would go, "That's great, but it's not real. Clearly, that's not real." And so, <laughs> as we've as, as our kids are grown and out now, we can travel together, and and she will take me places and say, "See, it's real." I'm like, okay, <laughs> I believe you now. Yeah. So I'm curious, what's something you had trouble believing until you experienced it yourself? Just about everything. <laughs> Growing up, you, you live a life where you, you can get that way, where um, you're not going to believe anything until you actually see it, because you have a strong hermeneutic of suspicion, mm. and you're you're kind of worried about that. But but it you know narrowing it down some, uh, a large part of my profession these days is writing grants, asking people for money, and we we all hope we're going to get it, and we're all sure we're going to get it. But I've learned <laughs> not to believe it until I see it. Yes. So you hold the check. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> yes, indeed. I had a couple of things. So I'm actually going to dip back into childhood because I was definitely a child who learned by doing more than by following instruction. Um, and so I'll give an example, but just understand that the example is representative of my childhood. So, you know, those, um, you know, those little fuzzbusters that you rub over your sweaters and it gets all the little knit thingies off. Yeah. Um, well, I was playing with it and my dad said, go put that up. You're going to hurt yourself. You're going to cut yourself. Go put it away. And so I went to take it to the back room. But at some point along the way, I was standing in front of the mirror and I thought it made the sound like my dad's automatic shaver. And so I started rubbing it on my face and 
Um, and it kind of felt good. It tickled a little. It was fine. But then I rubbed it accidentally, maybe on purpose, across my lip. Ooh. And it took a big old chunk oh. out of my lip. And I started bleeding. Oh, no. And um, so then I was terrified because I had not done what I was supposed to do. And um, tried to stop the bleeding, but finally had to go and fess up to my dad that I had not followed instructions. But the thing is, is I rarely believed it when they told me something was going to hurt me um, until I actually experienced it. And that really is very representative of my childhood and maybe a little bit of my adulthood. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> well, that explains a lot now. Yeah, really. I'm sure that yeah. it does. <laughs> Well, for me, as I grew up in the country, um, southern Arkansas, and really it wasn't until I got married that even a few years after that, before I really traveled much, even out of state, um, Arkansas was pretty much it. And so uh, over the next few years, you know, I was able to start traveling, even it's just in the U.S. a little bit. And I had always heard... Regina make fun of the Ozark Mountains in Arkansas because I would say, aren't these mountains beautiful? They're just gorgeous. Look how big they are. And she's like, they're beautiful mountains. They really are, but they're not that big. <laughs> she goes, you, you need to see big mountains. You need to see yeah. like the Rockies or the Alps. And and I was like, yeah, they can't be that much different. Well, then one one summer, her parents took Regina and I on a trip out west and we got to go up into the Rocky Mountains. Mm. And I remember the first time that I stepped out on one of those overlooks among the Rocky Mountains. <laughs> nothing against the beauty of the Ozarks. But yeah, they're a lot bigger. <laughs> wow. And I, I really was speechless over it. Um, and, and I still love to go back because it's such a different experience from what I had uh, growing up. But it really was hard to believe that such massive mountains existed until I saw them. And so now I find myself saying that to my kids who have not seen the Rockies <laughs> and saying, oh, you've got to you got to go see them. But anyway, yeah, sometimes we have to we have to see it for ourselves. Well, it may be that some of that same human instinct uh, urge to have to see things or experience them is part of this passage. This is a Pentecost Sunday passage. And uh, David, would you help us get started? Sure. If you're a big fan of movies and music, as I'm sometimes known to be, you might remember that iconic scene from Jerry Maguire, where Tom Cruise, knowing that his career as a sports agent is likely coming to an end because he started to exhibit things like principles, uh, has his last chance at, at a client, Rod Tidwell, played by Cuba Gooding Jr. And he's got him on the phone, and he's trying to convince him to continue to engage him as his representative. Perhaps not realizing the desperate nature of Cruz's situation, Rod makes him convince him that he still seriously wants the job by shouting, Show me the money! until he believes that Cruz is showing sufficient conviction. You may remember that scene. Show me the money! Has since become something people shout when they're either really want, wanting something, or when they want to convince others that they're sincere. And I think it replaced Clara Peller shouting, Where's the beef? 
as something you're supposed to shout when you're feeling disappointed and want someone else to convince you that you still believe in them. Anyhow, the scriptures we're looking at today are not from Revelation, and that should be exciting to some of us already. But if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know that we've been mired in John's vision for a while, and now we're finally free of that conversation. Or are we? John was a bit of a maverick in his day, and while the Johannian community was known for some pretty blunt letters and an apocalypse that seems to get people all worked up, it also produced the gospel, this gospel, which contains some very different material from the others. The Jesus we find in John's work takes on a much more cosmic perspective, talking about the Son of Man and God's larger purpose, much more than the one who appears in the other Gospels. He's a bit softer and yet harder to pin down, despite having multiple episodes where people are trying to do so. This is the Jesus who was quoted in John 3.17, despite our attempts to ignore it in favor of the preceding verse. John's Jesus strongly focuses on love over legalism, much like John does, and it colors the words that we hear him say. Small wonder, then, that when Philip shows up with his own version of, show me the money, that Jesus has already had this conversation. The Pharisees were asking pretty much the same questions four chapters ago. And when Jesus told them what he was up to, they immediately decided they had to kill him. It makes me wonder whether Philip was saying something like, Look, Jesus, we all heard what you told those Pharisees, but now that it's just us talking, how about showing us something? And of course, Jesus gave him a very similar answer. But at least he didn't tell Philip he wasn't a disciple like he did the Pharisees. I'm sure that Philip was a bit disappointed and perhaps a little embarrassed. But Jesus boils things down by changing the conversation over to talking about what those who love him will be able to achieve after he leaves. John's big on talking about love and how it's the cornerstone of being a disciple, whether you're one of the original 12 or just one of us today. At issue here, of course, is what we really mean when we say we have the sort of unqualified love that Jesus is talking about. In this passage, it involves Jesus keeping Jesus' commandments, but those commandments are best distilled to loving God and other people. We don't get a Ten Commandments moment in this gospel, so much as constant reminders to place other people first, accept them without conditions, and claim our place as God's children through showing that love. Now, in case you need a few commandments of some sort, here are some statements I suggest might fit the bill. Uh, First, love God and others without qualification or limit. Okay, maybe I only have the one commandment, but I do have a few statements for you that might help. Uh, First, to paraphrase Cornell West, Remember that justice is what love looks like in public, or justice is what you get when love becomes public policy. Second, fellowship is what you get when love becomes organizational policy. By fellowship, I mean a sense of commonality and a place in a larger whole where everyone is cared for. Uh, Third, 
Heaven is what you get when love becomes personal policy. I get the feeling that Philip wasn't able to get his head around that last one, and that was leading him to want Jesus to show him heaven, to trot God in and force a conversation. In setting everyone straight, Jesus admits that seeing what Philip is looking for is going to be difficult, especially since he will have gone on ahead of us. But he does promise that another advocate will come and help us along the way. Today is Pentecost Sunday which some people refer to as the birthday for the Christian church. It observes a passage from Acts where this paraclete, to whom Jesus refers in this passage, comes in the form of wind and fire and noise and people speaking foreign tongues and a lot of spectacle. We make a lot of this event where the early followers of the way receive the Spirit in a very public fashion, and we should. But it comes back to this passage when Jesus' closest friends are trying to parse out how they might get a vision of their future, their task, and their relationship with God. Philip has his show-me-the-money moment, and Jesus sets him straight. But we know that eventually Philip will be shown what he was asking for in a very public way. As you look back at the exciting story of this day in our heritage, Let us not forget that it is an extension of Jesus' call to show that we really do love him by opening ourselves to others who, as in the Acts story, come from different places, speak different languages, live different lives from ours. If we're going to ask Jesus to show us something, let's show him something. Those are some thoughts about today's scripture. David, thank you for such a great um, introduction to this text and for giving us some things to think about. I have to be honest, every time you do the introduction, I find myself just wanting to sit and meditate on it. Um, I find myself not really wanting to respond or knowing exactly how to respond because you put things in a way that, um, that causes me to want to think about them, um, but also in a way that's very clear and matter of fact. But as I was as I was listening to you um, offer these words about this text, um, one of the phrases that you said stuck out. It was "Heaven is what you get when love becomes personal policy," um, and it's such a great line. But if you have anything else to offer on that, I'd love to hear you expound a little bit on where you got that phrase from or how you came to that because it. All three of those things, the justice and the fellowship and the heaven were just great. But I really kind of latched on to this. Heaven is what you get when love becomes personal policy. And if I need to make a short form of it, because honestly, I'm working on a sermon right now. And that was a line from the sermon. (laughs) We do all this reading in the scriptures and our congregation. We talk about this a lot, how Jesus is taking us together on a road someplace. We're traveling together. We're going someplace together. And to be a citizen of this kingdom to which Jesus is taking us or to be part of the crowd that's going, there are certain things that you have to do to really fit and and stay with us and, and to walk the way we're walking. And one of those is an absolute commitment to loving other people. If that's not your personal policy, if that's not what you've committed yourself to, 
and are really trying to be. It's very hard to be following the things Jesus has told us we need to be doing to accept the kingdom of heaven that has come to us. Absolutely. Absolutely. It made the introduction a little long, so I had to take that part out. <laughs> I was thinking about it at the time. No, it was it's just such a it's such a great um it's such a great way to put it. Most of our traditions of Christianity, our Christian practices have become incredibly individualized. Mm -hmm. And I hear a lot of time how we should, and a lot of time on this podcast, we talk about taking it out of this individualized faith and un understanding that it's a communal faith. But this kind of bridges that. I feel like this statement says, okay, so there is a personal nature to faith. We all have a faith that we have to contend with and we have to wrestle with and we have to own for ourselves eventually. And so, as you're working with that and wrestling with that, love can inform how we engage with other people or love can acting in love with other people is a way that we take this personal and individual part of our faith and bring it out into the whole. It just feels like a much more positive way to talk about that individualistic faith that can often become negative, but that it actually can be quite empowering. Um, if we allow love to lead the way that that faith is practiced in real life, I, I would that think was kind that. of cumbersome, but maybe it made sense. No, it made sense, but but I would I would basically add to that that at some point, loving other people is something for which we have to hold ourselves accountable and not think, oh, someone else should do that. Yeah, you know, we have to personally be committed to that and put in the effort it takes to do that. You know, and if we're not willing to do that, then we're not willing to be disciples. Mm. So clearly this is a lectionary text for Pentecost Sunday. Mm -hmm. And uh, I believe in our show notes, or we, we have a shared doc that we, sh we work on before the podcast starts. And, and someone had raised the question about, you know, in what way is this a Pentecost passage? So I'm wondering, though, in hearing us talk, if it is that we're putting our finger on the nature of the church, of what the church is called to be and why it was brought into existence. Well, I would think this that, way of being together. I would think that this passage being here and this place in this way is, if nothing else, opening a door to the Pentecost conversation. Because Jesus flat out says, you won't, you know, I won't always be here with you. I'm not going to be, you're going to do a lot of things after I'm gone. And I'm going to make sure something is sent to you that's going to help you get through here. So it's kind of saying, be waiting for something to happen. It, it sets the stage for the bigger story about Pentecost that comes later. You know, so you know, it doesn't say Pentecost all over the passage, but if you don't have passages like this, how do you know what's going on when Pentecost comes around? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But, it, but I think it's also a really good question for us to ask in 2022 mm -hmm. for reasons we've discussed before that, it feels like the church has an opening to rethink some of the ways we are together and the way we relate to the world and the communities around us. And to ask maybe these questions afresh, what are we called to do and be together and in this place and time? Yeah, I mean, Pentecost was um, all about 
like when you go back and you look at that story, it was all about different kinds of people being able to understand one another and worship together. And they all received the spirit is what we are told. Um, and they came from different communities and cultures and places and spoke different languages. Even they had so many things in their world that kept them from one another. And it was the spirit that brought them all together that, that said, these boundaries do not have to be boundaries to being in relationship and in fellowship with one another. And we live now in a time in which our dominant conversations are about building walls and lines around countries and what land belongs to who and which people group has a right to this place or this time or this experience. Don't let those people in here because then we're going to have to speak their language and and all of these, that's the dominant conversation that we hear when we turn on the news in the evening. I think that as Christian people, our job, our calling is to show the world that those boundaries don't have to keep us apart. That when we live by the spirit and in love, those boundaries fall away. And one of the interesting things about the Pentecost story, keeping what you were just saying, Nikki, they don't say this in the scripture, but it's implied. And that is none of these people who received the spirit cared about how it looked. You yeah. know, there are people think, oh, look, they're all drunk on new wine out there, rolling around speaking <laughs> weird languages. They didn't care. <laughs> they did. <laughs> the spirit came. And at that point, those stupid little things didn't matter. But we are so caught up in our age with caring about those kinds of things. It makes it difficult to have those kinds of moments. And a real good example of that is, yeah, I know I pick on people, but I'll stand up in front of a church and say, you know, when I'm dealing with uh, my African-American brothers and sisters and we're talking in public and stuff, they're encouraging me. They're shouting back. They're involved in what I'm doing because they believe in it and they want part in that and they don't care how it looks. Right. But in our church, I'd be lucky if I get an amen out of you once a quarter out of one, <laughs> <in> one person. <laughs> you know, got to be something good. We care too much about how we look when the spirit comes. And I think we tamp it down because of that. Well, so I, I had the opportunity uh, a couple of weeks ago to travel across portions of Virginia. And I met with ministers at different uh, restaurants and churches and fellowship halls and and across several days kind of made made my way from the eastern part of the state to the, excuse me, the western part of the state to the eastern part of the state. And one of the stops was in Charlottesville, Virginia. And I, I won't name the church, but some of you may figure it out anyway. But there's a church that sits right across from the university there in Charlottesville. And it is the same university where where the riots happened uh, some years ago and where the white supremacists showed up with torches and they were, it was not good. But there's a church that sits right there across the street from the campus. And you would think that they would have, you know, a booming college student ministry. But like so many churches these days, that has not been the case. It hasn't been like it used to be in terms of how student ministries work. 
And I, I would think other college town churches may feel the same kinds of dynamics, that it things that used to connect and work don't always do that anymore. And so they they kind of found their way into a new way of relating with the students across the street. There, and I can't remember the full story, but there was something going on that brought some of the college students onto the church's campus. And one of the students noticed a washer and dryer. And they said, is there any way I can use that? And the, the college minister was like, well, sure. What do you need? Is it, you know, is your stuff broken? And anyway, there was a story about how hard it was just to wash the clothes in their particular dorm. And this would just really help out right now. So I brought their clothes over and washed them and all that. And, and ended up, you know, through conversation, learning more about that student and the student learned about the church cared. And because the minister said, if you need to come back and wash your clothes again, it won't be right here. Now, again, this to me is spirit moving kind of stuff because months later, the church has now put in place a, a room. They took a room in the church and one of their buildings and made that just the college student room. And all it has in it, it has couches and chairs. It has game systems and a TV. It has Netflix and, the, and a streaming box. It's got snacks galore. It's got a refrigerator full of food, drinks. <laughs> And a washer and dryer. <laughs> and they have, they tell the students who they come in contact with, you can use this 24 hours a day. Wow. You have access to this church and this community 24 hours a day. So students can walk across the street and go in that building and go into that room and do whatever they need to do anytime. And sometimes the college minister is there and sometimes she's not. And it's okay because the church is saying, we are here for you in the way you need us. And 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 so out of that, they've, they've also begun kind of a mentoring approach where um, the college minister just offers if it's interesting. And sometimes it's not even formal. It's just she happens to be in there doing something when students come in to get a snack or wash clothes. And she just strikes up a conversation and ends up being part of their lives and building relationship. And so what she's saying is that right now, their ministry is much more a one-on-one -on -one with a bunch of students than a gathering of students in a group, which frankly scares some students because of past experiences that haven't always been good or positive. But what I heard in the story and felt in <laughs> what church lets people come and go 24 hours a day, even in a particular part of their building, right? But that is an act of faith and grace. That is a movement of the Spirit from a congregation trying to figure out what's next. What do we look like as we move forward? And how do we minister to these people that God has placed right here in our midst? Now, I'm going to be paying attention <laughs> to this church um, to see what happens there, because I think where the Spirit moves in one place may not be the way it moves somewhere else, but it may also be the way that helps other congregations connect with students one-on-one -on -one where they're needed. And it might just be over a washer and a dryer. It made me think, this whole conversation made me think of, of Rachel Held Evans, one of her comments. She had so many insights about the nature of the church as a community. And she said, one of the most destructive mistakes we Christians make 
is to prioritize shared beliefs over shared relationship, which is deeply ironic considering we worship a God who would rather die than lose relationship with us. So much wisdom about where we should focus our faith. Thank you all for this good conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Subscribe to the Faith Element Podcast on iTunes or Google Play. Learn more about our Faith Element Bible Study curriculum at faithelement.net. Faith Element is a service of Faith Lab.